right, well, we're in this series that we've called Upside Down Kingdom, and yes, the picture is supposed to look like that. All right, uh, it's the Upside Down Kingdom. Do you get it? Turn your head like this, and maybe, maybe you guys can see it. So, All right, we are uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, seeing the things that Jesus taught. Last week, we talked about how he said we are the salt of the world, we are the light of the earth. I said that backwards, but that's okay. All right, and basically what we're getting at is, is the distinctiveness of those who are part of the kingdom. The kingdom uh, is, is people that uh, do not rely on themselves, but rather rely on God uh, to see them through the day. And Jesus, uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, uh, gives us uh, some very strong ethics of what these men and women of God are supposed to look like and act like. And uh, that comes out pretty clearly in this section that we're going to read today. All right, so today we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. Uh, we're going to be Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to there. Uh, and, and like I said, last week we learned about those who are blessed. And it's not the rich and powerful, it's those who are relying on, on God, and from uh, this topic, this discussion of the who those who are blessed, those who are the salt and light of the world, Jesus will turn to the main message. And to understand uh, what he's going to say in these verses, uh, we have to understand a concept that I briefly talked about last week, but that is very important that we have in the back of our mind this week. Matthew throughout his gospel, tries to show Jesus as the next Moses. Uh, and this concept uh, plays itself out really powerfully in these verses, okay? Uh, so Moses was uh, the leader of Israel. He was called by God to bring e Israel out of bondage as slaves in Egypt and bring them to the promised land. And so he does that, and, and while he's doing that, they come to a place called Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, God gives Moses uh, the law that the Israelites were to follow. It's often called the law of Moses throughout the New Testament. Uh, and this is uh, basically God telling the Israelites, this is the way I'm going to interact with you now. Right, for a lot of their early history, God worked uh, with the head of the Israelite family. And that was easy when it was Abraham, his wife, and his one son. All right? Or when it was Isaac, his wife, and their two sons. All right? But then you get to Jacob, and Jacob has Jacob, his two wives, his two concubines, and his 13 children. And that's when it starts to get a little bit more harder to interact with just the head of the family. And by the time you get to Moses, you have a million people or more that are Israelites that they need to somehow uh, interact with God. And so that's what the law of Moses does. It provides the Israelites with the sacrifices, with the ways that they know that they are supposed to, to do to obey God. And God also promises them things in the law of Moses. Uh, at the end of Moses's life, uh, he will give an address to the Israelites, and it's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. Imagine me standing here for hours speaking to you, and someone, one of you writing it down. How fun would that be? I could do it. We could try it out. No? Okay. So Deuteronomy is basically the final address of Moses to the Israelites, and in that final address, in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, verse 15, we read this. Moses speaking, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen 
to him. And so Moses recognized that, that what he has done for the Israelites is not the end. Okay, God someday will bring a prophet just like Moses, and that when that guy comes onto the scene, that the Israelites are to follow him. And so what Matthew does throughout his entire gospel, but especially in this section, he tries to show Jesus as that new Moses. All right, so we talked about this last week where, where Jesus is where? Uh, when it's the Sermon on the Mount, where is he? He's on a mountain, right? All right, that's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. All right, and, and where was Moses when he uh, gave the law to the Israelites? He was on a mountain, right? So we see the similarities in that. There's a lot of other ones, uh, but especially in this section when Jesus talks about the law of Moses and his new way of living, uh, we see this played out very strongly. So we got that in the back of our mind. Jesus is the new Moses. All right, and so let's look and see what Jesus says here uh, in verse 17 of chapter 5. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so we have to ask a very important question within Christianity, and that is this. What role does the Old Testament play in our lives? And this is one of those questions that, that I think there's a lot of tension uh, we can go many different ways to see, uh, but I want us to look at a couple of the extreme views that, that I disagree with and then kind of figure out where we should be in this. One of the extreme views with the Old Testament in regards to Christianity is the view that says that the entire Old Testament still applies to us. All right, so everything that's in it, we should follow. So that means your Sabbath day, you should keep it holy, don't work. All right, you have to do that. Uh, you should also be making sure to follow the feasts. So Passover, Pentecost, all those feasts you should be participating in. Uh, the one I dislike the most is the dietary laws. Okay, uh, I'm going to talk about Mosier's for a second. Uh, I'm helping you out here, Gary, okay? Mosier's has bacon on sale for $2 a pound right now. Go get bacon. All right. <laughs> That's what we did yesterday. So, uh, but, but if you're following the dietary laws of the Old Testament, you're not allowed to eat bacon. All right. And so some people say that the Old Testament rules still apply. But my question then gets to what about the sacrifices? Because the sacrifices, if the entirety of the Old Testament still applies to Christians, we run into a problem there. Because if you ever read the book of Hebrews, you see that the sacrifices are no longer valid. All right? There's only one sacrifice, and that is Jesus, and there is no other sacrifice that we need. So there's that problem along with the fact that you can't eat bacon all right, that causes a lot of issues in this view. The other view, uh, the, on the other extreme, is to say that we don't even need the Old Testament at all. all right? And so you will oftentimes find Bibles that have what? Just a New Testament and Psalms. Yeah, you guys have that same Bible, don't you? All right? Yeah, so that's all you have. Why, why not the rest of the Old Testament? That's like 60% of the Bible. All right? and, and it's not always this case, but a lot of it is this view that we don't need to even worry about it. 
right? We don't need to follow it. The only problem is it's hard to read the New Testament and completely understand it without having even just a basic knowledge of the old. All right, so you open up the first book of the New Testament, and the first thing you see is a genealogy of Jesus, where they start listing off names, And if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, these names mean nothing to you. But every once in a while, you see some cool things like David, like Rahab. And if you have just a basic understanding of the Old Testament, these things just blow your mind on who is included in that. And so there's an importance to reading the Old Testament. Because if we get to reading Matthew and we see that he's trying to show us that Jesus is the new Moses, if you never read the Old Testament about Moses, you'd miss that completely as you're reading the new. And so there's a lot of issues with both of these views. However, they both give us good insights. In the idea that, that the Old Testament no longer needs to even be read by Christians, we get the understanding that the regulations that we find in the Old Testament, they don't apply to us. Right? You can eat bacon. You don't have to follow the dietary laws. You don't have to uh, do the feast. You don't have to sacrifice. Right? We, we have that in this view over here. On the other side, we do see some value Uh, from this group that say, yes, we should probably look at the Old Testament to see how it applies. There are uh, mandates in the Old Testament that really do apply to us still. And and they're really themes, they're really uh, big ideas. They're things like mercy. I mean, God, throughout the Old Testament and the New, talks about this concept of mercy and having uh, mercy towards those that harm you, forgiving them when they don't deserve it. And God in the Old Testament says you need to show mercy towards people. And in the New Testament, he does that, doesn't he, with Jesus and us. He shows us what mercy means. We also see this idea of justice, doing what is right. Right, even, when, even when everyone else says it's wrong, doing what is right, and justice was a big issue in the Old Testament. See, these judges, they are all a part of these small towns, and you know that in a small town, everyone knows everybody. Right, and you know all the details. And so a lot of times these judges would have these two people come before them, and they would already know their backstory, and they would decide the decision, the just judge, Uh, would decide what was going to happen before he even heard the arguments. Right? Justice. Doing what is right. And so oftentimes you would have a poor widow who has no one to support her coming up against a rich person that does a lot for the community, and even if the widow was in the right, she would be ruled against. Justice. God desired justice for his people ruling in favor of the widow, even though she is insignificant. And that idea of justice follows into the New Testament. We, we see this idea of humbleness, being humble before your God. And it's the idea that we see throughout the Beatitudes that we read last week, where we're talking about not relying on our own strength to see something accomplished, but rather humbly submitting to God and allowing God to accomplish it for us. Are we humble? And we see this concept throughout the Old Testament. 
and it informs what we understand of humbleness in the new. All right, we also see this idea of love. And God desired love even from the beginning. Deuteronomy, he says, love the Lord your God with all you are. All right, and, and so this idea of loving God, do you truly love God? It really doesn't take shape in our minds unless we understand what God meant in the Old Testament because it informs the New Testament. There are mandates that we see in the Old Testament that we really should pay more attention to, and the only way we can pay more attention to it is if we read the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament isn't something to be tossed away. All right? It's something that we should be looking at in our daily lives, in our devotionals, as we are studying the Bible, not just studying the new, but looking at the old as well. Paul writes that the Old Testament is written so for an example for us. Because we can look at the Old Testament, we can see how they were not humble, how they were not showing mercy, how they weren't just, how they didn't love people. And we can see the punishments that came upon them because they failed to do these things. And we can learn from that and say, hey, we probably shouldn't do that. We probably should actually do these things God is asking us to do. And so they're written for our example that we may learn from them. And if we're to learn from them, that means we have to look at them. And so these extreme views that completely applies, that's not entirely true. And this extreme view that we can just toss it away and we don't have to worry about it, that's not right. We have to be somewhere in the middle. And there's tension here. To what extent do we follow? I mean, I think we see tension in this next verse that Jesus says in verse 19. He says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus, talking about the Old Testament still, says we should be practicing these commands. And so there's tension. What, what do we mean by this? Right, what does Jesus mean by he's not going to abolish it? What does he mean by, by uh, he's come to fulfill it? Right, and those are all questions that are really up, up. I mean, there's lots of answers out there. And the answer I give you is, I don't know. Right, you you kind of work it out yourself, okay? <laughs> because I think that the New Testament gives us a lot of leeway in this, right, throughout other books. Uh, ultimately, I think the point that Jesus wants to get across to his followers is found in verse 20. He says, uh, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus reminds his listeners, his audience, about the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were very good at, not, at keeping the law. And, and they did this uh, by more or less putting a hedge around it. Jesus says you're putting a hedge around it and no one can come to God. All right, so imagine what he meant by this was this, okay? Imagine this podium was the law, and if I touch it, I'm sinning, okay? All right, and so for the Pharisees to make sure that you didn't even come close to sinning, they kind of set up this barrier, this fence, that, that as long as you don't break this command, you won't even come close to this, all right? And so, so that's kind of what they did, putting a hedge, keeping people away from breaking it. An example of this uh, in, in regards to the Sabbath, all right? The law was keep the Sabbath holy, do not work on it, that type of stuff. But what does that mean? What does it mean to work on the Sabbath? Well, God doesn't tell us. Right? We, ju- we, just, we just we don't know. And so the Pharisees, they said, okay, well, here's some rules. All right, here's what you can pick up and what you can't pick up. This is what you, 
what you can do and what you can't do. One of the rules that they had was you could walk about half a mile one way and a half a mile back. It's called a Sabbath day's journey. If you walked more than that, that was work. Right? Kind of extreme, right? If you walked a mile and, and, and one step beyond that mile, uh, that's Sabbath break and you're going to die. Right? And so that's kind of uh, essentially what they did. A bunch of rules like that uh, that just get annoying, right? right? But that was their righteousness. And, and what Jesus says to his followers is, you have to do better than that. Hmm. What does he mean by that? Well, I'm glad you're asked because he gives us six examples. We're going to look at four of them today. And they're going to be hard. All right, uh, don't get up and walk out because you're mad at what Jesus says, okay? I'm just going to say what Jesus says, all right? I love you, all right? But these are hard. Here's what he says in verse 30 or 21. You've heard it said that from to people long ago that you should not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to their brother, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in dangers of the fire of hell. Wow. Right? I mean, this is, this is what Jesus does in each one of these examples. He kind of quotes Old Testament, and, and sometimes just what they were teaching at the time. All right, in this case, he says, hey, you've heard it said, do not murder. That's an Old Testament quote. You shouldn't murder. We believe that, too, don't we? In our society, if you murder, that's bad. Don't murder. All right, but he goes even a step further. He says, not only should you not murder, but you shouldn't even be angry at your brother. Now, how many of you have ever been angry at your brother? Yeah. If you're not raising your hand, you're lying, and that's another issue. Yeah, we get angry a lot, right? And this is kind of where we see the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. The kingdom of earths, they say that if someone does something bad to you, you have every right to be angry. But Jesus says, no, you shouldn't be angry at your brother. Now we could take this to mean, qualify that he's saying He's talking about our fellow Christian. We could say that. We could say he's talking about our countrymen at the extent, all right, because there's a difference between your brothers and those who are not, all right? And so, so this idea that we are not to be angry is hard. I mean, that's a pretty high standard. And Jesus kind of talks about how, how when we get angry, a lot of times we speak negatively about them, right? All right we say, Raka, we say, you fool. All right, and usually when we do that in anger, we break down the relationship with each other. All right, and, and I think that's kind of what Jesus is getting at. You don't need to be so angry that you destroy whatever relationship you have. Because when you're angry, you say things that you probably don't actually mean. Or that you know that's going to hurt them. And so you say it just to hurt them. And so Jesus warns us about getting angry at them. 
He continues explaining this. He says, therefore, if, you're off, uh, if you are offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go be reconciled to them and then come and give your gift. And Jesus recognizing something that we have to understand is that when we have an estranged relationship with, with a fellow Christian, then we have an estranged relationship with God says you shouldn't offer your gift to God if you guys are having issues. Notice he says that the person responsible for correcting that isn't the person that's mad, it's who? The person who made them mad. And it's their responsibility to, to recognize, yeah, that person's mad at me. I need to stop and I need to go to them and be reconciled. There is importance in being unified as a church. I mean, Jesus in John 17 will pray that his followers will be united so that they can go and tell the world about Jesus and that the world may believe because they are united, right? Circular reasoning. Be united so the world will believe in Jesus. And so there's importance in being united. And so when the person recognizes that there is a problem and I've caused that problem, they need to go talk to them. Now, let me give some advice on this, okay? When that person comes to you and you're angry at them and they want to talk to you, you need to talk to them, all right? Don't do this thing that, I'm not saying Emily does this, but a lot of wives do, okay? When the husband comes and the wife is angry and they say, hey, babe, why are you angry? You know what they often say? Not Emily, but a lot of wives, okay? <laughs> they say, well, you should know why I'm angry. Or, or, or if you don't know, I'm not telling you, all right? To which the husband, nine times out of ten, is like, I still don't know why you're mad. All right, just, just being honest, okay? So when a person makes someone angry, a lot of times they don't know, one, why they're feeling anger. They don't know why, what they've done, all right? And so you have to tell them, hey, it's because you did this. And most times people that make someone else angry, if they know that that would make them angry, they probably wouldn't have done it in the first place unless they're really mean people, right? And mean people shouldn't be in your lives, all right? So most times we're not trying to make people mad at us, all right? And so we have a responsibility not to just assume that they know why I'm mad at them. We have to talk it out and be reconciled. Now, on the flip side, I think it's also the responsibility of if you're really mad at this person and they haven't come talk to you, it probably means they don't realize you're mad at them. All right, that happens sometimes, all right? I'll admit it, Emily gets mad at me and I don't even know she's mad till like a week later, all right? And so uh, you, you have to recognize that sometimes people are oblivious, all right, to, to what they've done to hurt you. And so you might need to go to them as well. And so there's this idea of being reconciled. Jesus says this uh, to finish this section out. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while uh, you are still together on your way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Again, the importance that Jesus is giving to being united. I don't let it go to the courts. I mean, that, that's just not going to end well for anyone. Work it out before then. 
Right, that's kind of what Jesus uh, is talking about here. All right, uh, from there, Jesus turns to another topic in verse 27. Uh, he says this, You have heard uh, that it is said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, and so this is, again, another one of those standards. He says, don't commit adultery. That's what you're taught. All right, that's a good thing to be taught. But he says, takes it to an even higher level. He says, not only should you not commit adultery, but you shouldn't even look lustfully at another person. And there's good reasons for this. When you look lustfully, eventually you could lead you down the path to committing adultery. All right, and so this is, this is a big one, I think, in our culture. I mean, we're in a place in our world where we can find pornography anywhere. I mean, we could probably open it up on our phones if we really wanted to. I mean, it's at our fingertips. And so it's really easy to, to find ourselves lusting after someone who's not our spouse. And Jesus says, this should not be. And really what I think Jesus is talking about in this is this idea of being pure in heart that he talked about last week. I mean, our outside needs to reflect what's on the inside. And we need to be pure in heart in this issue, not desiring someone else, but desiring our spouse alone. Jesus goes on, he says uh, something that is hyperbolic, okay? That means it's an exaggeration. You shouldn't do this, literally, okay? He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away, all right? It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. And what Jesus is saying is that you shouldn't go cut off your eyes and gouge your, gouge your eyes and cut off your arm, all right? What he is saying is there is a seriousness to sin. And when you are doing things that are causing you to sin, then maybe you need to cut it out of your life. All right? If you are stuck in pornography, then maybe the best thing for you is to get rid of the computer or get rid of the smartphone. It might be the best thing for you. All right? and, and eventually we're looking for a transformation of the heart. All right? But sometimes you have to start with behavior modification. All right? Stop it. Just, just not be a part. If you're an alcoholic, you should probably stop going to bars. Right, that's a behavior modification thing. But eventually we want you to get to the point where you decide in your heart that I don't even want to go to the bars. Right? There's a transformation that takes place when your heart chooses not to sin. Right? And sometimes it begins with behavior modification, but the end goal is transformation. And so Jesus here is saying it is better for you to get rid of stuff. If that's your eye, get rid of it. If it's your hand, get rid of it so that you will not sin. So whatever sins you have, what can you do to cut it out? Because it is better for you to lose a part of you than to lose your whole body to hell. All right, so that's what Jesus says. This next one, I love you guys, okay? Just recognize that before I say this, okay? 
It has been said in verse 31, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is tough in our culture because about 50% of marriages end in divorce. And what Jesus says here is that the only reason for divorce is, is sexual immorality. Paul will say if an unbelieving spouse leaves a believing spouse, that's another reason. Those are the only two New Testament reasons okay, that, that are given for divorce. And we have to recognize what they were doing first. All right? What they were doing was, was extreme. Uh, in that culture, if your wife burnt your food, you could divorce her. All right? Extreme, okay? especially in first years of marriage, a lot of first years of marriages, right? Not my first year. We were good, right? All right. Yeah, she's shaking her head. Yes. (laughs) But in a lot of marriages, I mean, that would be easy for us to do. All right. But that's not what is desirable. All right. Jesus says the the bar is sexual immorality. All right. And, and, And that's a tough one. Because um, not a lot of divorces in that way. Some do, many do, but not all of them. All right, so just recognize that's what Jesus says, and we'll talk more about it here in a second. The last thing uh, that we want to look at today is this, from verse 33 to 37. It says, anyone, uh, again, you have heard that it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or for it is God's throne, uh, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to do is simply say yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. And so again, we have to recognize what they were doing that Jesus is trying to address. They had all these rules on what you could swear to and not actually fulfill. So uh, an example, I, I don't I forget exactly the good examples, but here's an example. Uh, You could swear by the temple, and they said that if you swore by the temple, you didn't actually have to fulfill it because the temple is just a building. But if you swore by the ark that's inside the temple, you had to fulfill that because it was the throne of God. Make sense? Yeah, it doesn't, (laughs) okay? You're supposed to shake your head no. All right, Uh, but it made sense to them. And so they had all these different rules on what they could swear by and what they could get away with breaking oaths. And Jesus comes to them and says, guys, you got to stop that. All right, say yes, say no, and be true to your word. And that essentially is the bar that he wants them to set. Don't swear, just be honest. If you don't want to go with that person, don't go with them and tell them that. Don't say, oh, yeah, I'll be there, and then not show up. All right, that is what he's getting at. So, let's talk about these. These are very high standards. Don't get angry. Man, we mess that up all the time, don't we? I mean, don't be honest. With, with what you say, and, and a lot of times, you know, I'm, I mess up in that. You know, don't be lustful, and that's difficult for people. I mean, don't, don't get a divorce. That, that's very difficult depending on the situation. And I think that these are standards that Jesus is calling us to, but we have to recognize that we mess up. 
and that there are times that we're going to get angry, and there's times that we're going to be lustful, and there's times that we're going to be dishonest, and there's times that we're going to get divorces. And we need to recognize in those moments where we mess up the faults that we have, the mistakes that others have made, and we need to come to the cross of Christ and we need to give it to Jesus. And then we need to move on. See, we as Christians have this beautiful thing called mercy and grace. And while these are things that Jesus desires from us and things that we should desire of our own lives, there are times that we aren't going to live up to. And we are not defined by the sins that we have made, but we are defined by Jesus and the forgiveness that we find in him. And so if you've messed up in any of these areas in your past, don't let that define who you are. Give it to Jesus and move on. And don't let other people look at you and say, well, you are a screw-up, because honestly, they're just as much of a screw-up as you are. I mean, I make mistakes, right? And I'd be the first one to tell you I am not the most perfect person in this room. Right? And, and we need to recognize that in ourselves and in our dealings with other Christians. And we need to have love. And when we love and when we recognize that, that we are defined by Christ and we are his and we are new creations in him, then we can find forgiveness not only for ourselves, but for those that we interact with. And so if you're dealing with any of these things, you've not ha- hit these standards You know, just come to Jesus. He is the only one that can give you forgiveness. Will you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful for the standard that you're asking us to live to, and and it is difficult at times to hold up to it. Lord, there are breakdowns in relationships. We, We have issues being honest with each other. We have issues having marriages that are fantastic every single time. We have issues uh, of lusting after people that are not our spouses. We have issues uh, in getting angry. And Lord, when, when we have these problems, let us not rely on our own strength. Instead, let us learn from what you said last week of, of relying on you, of being humble and being in you. Lord, give us the strength to have lasting relationships with our brothers and our sisters and our spouses and and our people that we're just in contact with. Let us be men and women of God who are living to this higher standard that you've called us to that looks a lot different than the world. Help us, Father, to find forgiveness when we fail. It is the cross that even allows us to be here. Father, when we fail, let us find mercy and grace in you. Help us to know that that you have made us new and that the things that we've done in the past, they are forgotten. They're as far as the east is from the west. And let us, Lord, move forward to this race that you have given us, to this path that you've set before our feet. And help us be guiding lights to those who are lost. I ask these things in your name. Amen.